Please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes to us today from Matthew 28, verse 16. Here's the Word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus has risen from the dead. And I think it's spectacular, and even at times it is utterly unbelievable. But he has really risen from the dead. He has really risen from the dead. And Jesus, after he rises from the dead, calls his disciples to come to him to meet with him on a mountaintop one last time. These mountains uh, in the book of Matthew are very important. Just like in the Old Testament, God meets with his people and does really important work and important business on mountains. Jesus, too, gave his most famous sermon on the mount, on the mountaintop, where he gives probably the best explanation and teaching on the Old Testament law and its application to all of life, including the human heart. On the mountain, Jesus is transfigured into his heavenly glory, and his disciples see him for who he truly is, the King of all glory. And now at the very end of the book, we find ourselves on a mountaintop one more time, and Jesus gives his great commission. A commission which is uh, the giving of a special powers and authority for the purpose of carrying out a task or a duty. That's what a commission is. It's giving of special uh, powers and authority for the purpose of carrying out a task or a duty. Matthew does not give us very many words uh, of Jesus post-resurrection. There's not a whole lot. And so what he chooses to tell us is, of, is very important. And Matthew ends with a great commission and says to his disciples, in a sense, continue what I've started. Make disciples. This passage helps us often because, because post-Easter, post-celebrating the risen, you know, the risen king, we are left oftentimes wondering, now what? Uh, you know, he's risen, but what do I do with that? What does this mean for a person like me? And I think Jesus knows that we so easily lose sight of our purpose that we are pretty fast to forget what Jesus asks of us. And Jesus graciously gathers his disciples together one last time, and he gives them his, uh, his, his famous last words in the book of Matthew. And he says three, three things, essentially. He says, I have been given authority, make disciples, and I'm with you. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to ask, what do these three things mean? What does he mean by this? What, is, what does Jesus say? That's our big question. What, what does Jesus say at the end? What does Jesus say? Well, one of the key words in our passage is actually the word all. Uh, he uses it multiple times. He says, all authority. He says, all nations. He says, all that I have commanded. And he says, always, all days. The implication of what Jesus is pointing out is that its scope and his application for, for life is massive. He says, me, the risen Jesus, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
In Matthew, Satan offered Jesus an earthly authority because that's all he could ultimately give. But God has given the risen Messiah cosmic authority, authority over the heavens and the earth, an authority that stretches to every inch of all the universe and is over and above all of creation. Fascinatingly, this this scene, uh, the Great Commission, is grounded in the Old Testament. It took me a while to realize that there's this little footnotes, a little cross-reference on, um, I think it's verse 18, and it says Daniel 7, 13, and 14. So if you go read it, it says this, Daniel says this, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he he has come to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, so the, to, the, to the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What we see in Daniel is that a messianic Son of Man would one day be handed over authority and a kingdom. And what Jesus is saying, and he's been saying this throughout the book of Matthew, I am that son of man. (laughs) I am that son of man. And I've been given authority to build and to rule over a cosmic kingdom. Jesus, who came declaring and explaining and demonstrating and building the kingdom of God, has been given cosmic authority and ultimate control to build and rule his cosmos and to advance his kingdom. And these disciples need to know that Jesus has this authority. Why? Because when Jesus raises from the dead, the last days have become. The last days have begun. And this age Jesus describes as the inbreaking and advance of the kingdom. That is the age that we live in. We are in the last days, the last chapter before Jesus comes once again. This is an age that is characterized by the advance of the kingdom of God of the gathering of the nations back to himself and the reclamation of all that is lost. Even creation is groaning for its future redemption. And yet this age is also characterized by the flesh, right? That sinful part of human nature that still resists God. The flesh, the world, and the devil wage war against that kingdom. Paul says there are things which we war against which are not of this world, but ultimately that even those the gates of hell will not prevail against. And the disciples need to know that Jesus has cosmic authority and that he has cosmic control. That all the promises about the kingdom that we see coming true in the book of Revelation will for sure come to pass. Why? Because there are a lot of days when Jesus isn't, when it feels like Jesus isn't in control. They need to know this because there is a lot of days and a lot of times when it feels like the kingdoms of this world and sinful humanity and the flesh and the devil are a lot, lot stronger than Jesus. There are days when things wage war against the kingdom and Jesus does not seem like he really has cosmic authority. One such person who doubts this is a man who, uh, his name is Richard Dawkins. Uh, and he is a, he's a doctor, he's an evolutionary uh, biologist, and a person who is very outspoken and against religion. And he said in this talk that I read once, or listened to, I can't remember, that the only reason people believe in any religion is because they are born into it. 
That's what he says. He says, there is no God. Uh, there is no, right? There is no God. There is no truth in any religion. But people ultimately just believe uh, in any religion because their parents did or because everybody else does that lives around them. So he says, you know, if you're born in India, you're most likely going to be a Hindu. And if you're born in Asia, you're most likely going to be a Buddhist or a Taoist. And if you're born in the Middle East, you're almost certainly going to be a Muslim. People don't believe any religion because it's true or because it's good or because it's persuasive. They believe because of birth and location and family and trends. And as he was saying this, I thought to myself, yes, okay, that's true. But also, like, it seems to me that the, you know, the trend in the West is to forsake the religions and traditions of your forefathers, to pursue your own course of self-worship, to do what everyone pleases. And that is very, very trendy in the West, right? You become an atheist or a nun. You just don't care. You do whatever you please. And so if you can't believe, right, in, in any of these religious claims because they're trendy or because your parents did it, then also it seems like Richard Dawkins can't trust his own thing to be true. Because it's a trend in the West to forsake the religion and traditions of your forefathers. But the real thing that I thought about as I heard him say this was, what about Christianity? What about Christianity? What about Christianity? Historically, Christianity is the only movement in religion that I know of to spread more or as much of because of evangelism and conversion than birth. Uh, He's right about these other religions, right? 85% of the Hindus live in India. 85% of Muslim people still live in the Middle East. 85% of Buddhists and, and Taoists still live in Asia, but not Christianity. Christianity has never stayed put. It started in a little country the size roughly of New Jersey, and then it spread to Syria and to Samaria, and some of the oldest churches in the world are in Egypt and Ethiopia, It spread to Rome and then to Greece. It even went to Asia and India in the early part of the first millennium. And it kept spreading to more and more until it dominated the entire west of Europe. And then it went to America, and it dominated America and Europe. And then it has exploded even unto this day where it is rising in South America, Africa, and Asia. So much so that in 1935, the most dominant Christian person was a white 45-year-old man from America. To today, it is a 24-year-old African. The gospel has always been moving. The kingdom has always been moving. And it has been expanding both through families and through neighbors, as well as through movements like evangelism and discipleship. Why? It is because Christ has been given cosmic authority. It is because Jesus is advancing his kingdom. We read in the Apostles' Creed that he sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules even now. And in this age of the kingdom of God, we see that Jesus is gathering citizens back to himself from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And they are worshiping Christ as the risen king who conquered sin and death. And now these people are ambassadors of this good news. We are the good news people who go proclaiming what Jesus has done. And Christ rules heaven and earth from his throne, and he is gathering a people to himself, and the gates of hell and death will not prevail. And the disciples absolutely needed to know this. Why? Because in a moment, they're going to be tasked as workers in this kingdom. 
They're going to be tasked as workers of this kingdom, and they're going to experience failure and persecution. They're going to experience death and suffering, and they are going to see and experience opposition from both inside the church and outside the church. Everywhere, it's going to seem like there's war. But Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, is sitting next to them. He is flesh and blood in evidence. His beating heart declares that the kingdom has already been won. And we go out to tell the good news that the resurrected Messiah is on his throne and that he's ruling the nations and that he is gathering a people to himself. And this is so important to us because we look at our church in America and we think, man, our numbers are shrinking. Is Jesus really real? Is God really in control? When I see just a handful of people show up to RUF or or nobody come to events, I begin to wonder, is Jesus really in control? But here's the thing. Jesus is sitting next to them with a beating heart, conquering death, conquering sin. And the kingdom of God is exploding. It's never stayed put and it never will because God is at work and he is building his kingdom. And we can and need to rest in our king, his control, and in his authority, because he is the cosmic king, and he is at work, and he will build his kingdom. So what does Jesus say? Jesus tells his disciples, I have cosmic control. I have cosmic control. But he has more to say than just this. Jesus next says in verse uh, verse 19, he says, therefore, which is the first word, he says, go therefore, uh, therefore, which, which, which he's grounding in what he just said, right? I have authority. And it's not just good news because I'm going to build this kingdom, but also I have authority over you. Therefore, he says, make disciples. And we have to listen because this command is not just for them, but it's for all of us. Now, most of us think here that the main command, right, because of the last 120 years, most of us think that the main command here is to go, right? That the main command here is to go. But actually, the only imperative, the only imperative, so I don't love talking about Greek, but the only imperative in Greek here, the dominant verb, is actually make disciples. The other three verbs that we see, which is go, uh, baptize, and teach, they're actually participles. And a participle is a verbal adjective. And the way that it functions in this text is it describes and gives further information on the main verb, which is to make disciples. So Jesus commands and tasks his kingdom workers with doing exactly what he did, which is making disciples. The three things that Jesus gives us here that further clarifies this, what this looks like, is going, baptizing, and teaching. And going here is probably best described as a disposition. It is intentionally moving towards others. The other is is all people from any nation, meaning anyone and everyone who is alive, who has a heartbeat, is the scope of God's reclaiming and reconciliation to be a disciple of Jesus. Going means we intentionally make disciples. We move towards people. We go anywhere and everywhere to anybody And we don't wait. We don't wait for people to come to us. We intentionally move outwards to all people. We make with the goal of ultimately making uh, disciples for Jesus. The second thing he says is baptizing them into the Trinitarian Godhead. And what this means is that this is having these disciples ultimately become and declare total loyalty and commitment to their new king and to the work of God's kingdom. 
So we're not just moving towards people. We're also baptizing them, meaning they become members and citizens under their new king. They declare their total commitment to God as his people. And this is new, this is public, and it is complete loyalty and commitment to God. And these people are treated as full members of this new covenant community, and they receive all the blessings as full members of as the people of God. And this is, of course, exactly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means to be totally and utterly committed and underneath him. But we also are teaching. And by teaching, we proclaim and demonstrate everything Jesus did and said. We proclaim and demonstrate, right? Because Jesus was a master teacher. He didn't just say things. He also lived it out. He showed him. He was like a living visual aid. He was like a living PowerPoint, you know, that gives you everything what it needs to look like. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. So we proclaim and demonstrate everything that Jesus did so that we also believe and grow in our own discipleship, but show and lead others what it looks like to follow Jesus as well. And he says we are to guard. We are to guard or to hold on to everything Jesus commanded. Everything he commanded, we guard these things with our life so that we do them. And notice there again is the second time he says all, all of his teachings, all of his life we emulate and live out and obey. Now, in the time of Jesus, uh, to be a disciple was a big deal. There was lots of disciples who followed lots of different teachers. And what you would do is, is you basically gave your life to the teacher uh, to learn everything they said and they did. And so there was a common saying back in the day that a good disciple would be covered in the dust of their teacher. Why? Because they followed so closely to their teacher and did everything just like he did. They imitated their master so closely that they were always covered in his dust and eating his dust. That's how closely they imitated their their master. Paul tells us in Galatians that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. The, 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 The picture here is following so closely to somebody that wherever you see their footprints on the ground, you put them Uh, you put your feet in the same spot. Uh, When I was a little kid, I grew up in Minnesota, and my grandfather had a decent amount of land, and we would go walking through the woods. And I learned very quickly that it was very much, you know, it was a lot easier, and I could keep up a little bit faster with my dad if I just put my feet in the snow tracks that he already put down. And Paul says, this is how we are to keep in step with the Spirit. This is what a picture of discipleship looks like. We keep, we put our steps right where Jesus is. And we live just as much as we can, just like he did. Or as Paul simply puts it, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which means Paul was making disciples. And ultimately, that discipleship is not about becoming more like me. It is always becoming more and more and learning to love like Jesus. And it's this task that Jesus gives us as kingdom workers to make disciples by being the type of people who intentionally are moving towards every and all type of people, teaching and demonstrating a life completely governed by everything that Jesus did and said, and having these disciples declare their total commitment to the Trinitarian God and his kingdom. And this is our task, Redeemer. This is what Jesus called his disciples to after, after Easter. And this is what he is reminding us is our great task this morning. We have been enlisted under a new king, and he has commissioned us. He has given us power, and he has given us authority as well as instruction to do what he has commanded. It is not optional because he is the king, 
and he has authority over us. Therefore, we must make disciples. But because we've emphasized over the last 100 years uh, the first word, go, because we've emphasized go, a lot of us have, have sort of missed uh, that, that this is not something for the 1% of the church that goes to, to other nations. Because we've emphasized go, we, we've sort of delegated this to missionaries who go to other countries, but that's to miss the point. The point is this is for all of us, not just the 1% uh, that, that leave and go to a different country. This is for all of us. We are all sent to make disciples. We are all to teach and demonstrate everything that Christ commands. We are all called to evangelize with the hope of total commitment to the new king and his kingdom. And the question obviously to me becomes, who am I discipling? The question for y'all, who are we discipling? How am I following my king? What would it look like for me to do this as a father or as a mother? What would it look like for me to disciple as a son or as a daughter? What would it look like for me to do this as a high school student? What would it look like for me to do this as a college student or as a professor? How am I doing this as a small business owner or somebody who works for a giant corporation? How am I doing this in my neighborhood to the people that live and walk amongst me? How am I doing this to my city? Am I doing this and having this done to me in my own church? Or... Have I disobeyed my king? Have I disobeyed my king and left this task to others? Christ has sent us as his kingdom workers into the world, and we must make disciples of every people, of every tongue, of every tribe, every nation. No one is off limits. We give this good news to everybody. And as I thought about this passage, the thing that fascinated me the most is as I began to think that most likely my faith and my own discipleship can be traced back through some sort of, you know, ancestral tree, back to somebody who is sitting at the feet of Jesus in this scene. Because somebody obeyed, and that other person who obeyed also made disciples, and because that other person also in turn made disciples, and that other person also in turn made disciples, I now am standing here in front of you as a member of this covenant community, as a disciple who is trying to make disciples. Who is my discipleship ancestors? That's what I want to know, Jesus. Who is the one that is sitting at your feet, listening and taking this command seriously, that now I am a disciple because they chose to obey? And this is so beautiful and so overwhelming to me that you just, I just want to shout to the heavens, like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And I am so thankful that for 2,000 years, the people of Christ and have taken this command seriously and loved people enough to move towards them, to teach and to show what it is to be a Christian and to invite them into his kingdom and into his people through baptism. What a task, what a life, what a calling that we get to do something so beautiful and something so worthwhile and lasting. So what does Jesus say? He says, I have cosmic authority, therefore make disciples. But he also says, behold. The last thing he says in verse 20, the last sentence, he says, and behold. And behold, whenever you see that in the Bible, means pay attention because I'm about to say something really important. Don't look away. If you're going to yawn, now's not the time. I'm about to say something to you that's really, really important. Behold. And he says, I, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the book of Matthew opens with the birth birth of Jesus. 
And unto us a child is born, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And from this mountaintop, as before Jesus leaves, he says, I am with you always. As he was born, he was with us by being and living amongst us. But the risen Christ will be with us by being in and working through us. And he will never leave us even for a moment. The way Matthew writes this verse is so interesting. He says, behold, or pay attention. And he puts so much emphasis on here that you can't miss it. It's I, I am with you. I am with you all, the church. I am with my people until the, every, until the end of the age. Every moment, all days, I am with you. Until the completion of time, until the last days are done, Christ is with us. And this is the last thing Matthew says in his entire gospel. The thing he wants them to walk away with is that Jesus now is with us and he will never leave us. The king is not so great and mighty that he sends us out on a great task and does nothing. Jesus, the amazing and loving God, goes with his people. My king is with me. And suddenly, Jesus' words and his teachings throughout the gospels make a little bit more sense. Because he says when we teach, when, when we proclaim the gospel, when we ask people to commit their lives to him, when we, when we move towards them, Jesus says you will face persecution. You will, they will kill you. You will suffer. You will experience loss. You will be rejected. But actually, know that when they persecute you, it's actually that they're persecuting me. But I will be, I will ultimately take your blows. When they kill you, they are actually trying to kill me. But don't worry, I will ultimately give you life. When you suffer, know that I suffer with you. I weep with you. And they did the same to me. I'm with you. When they take things from you, when you experience loss, when you lose your job, when you, when you lose respect from others, don't forget that they took everything from me, but I will repay tenfold. When they reject you, they are actually rejecting me. But in the end, you will be accepted, and I will never forsake you or abandon you. Why? Because Christ is always with us. And he is always working through us. And he sends his spirit to indwell with us so that the work we do and the things we do, when we serve and follow him, Christ is working with me and is always with me and always working through me. One thing that I've noticed uh, or I've learned in my very short time of being a dad is how much my presence actually affects my children. Like when Liam cries in the night or is afraid of the dark, if I just come in, he stops weeping. Uh, when, when he meets people who he doesn't know and he's shy or afraid and he cries out, when I just come and put my arms around him, he begins to calm down. He's no longer afraid. And when me or Gracie are with him, he's more courageous. He's more kind. He's more smiley. He's more obedient because he feels safe and he feels loved and he feels supported and he feels connected. And he needs these things to flourish. But so do we. And you see, this is what Jesus is promising us right now, that he is with us. Even in this moment, he is with us. And we need him because we can't flourish. We can't serve. We don't have the power to build this kingdom without him. Just like my son, we need the presence of Christ to help us thrive and to comfort us in all of life. Um, I, I once read a story about a man who some years ago was on a car ride home with his wife and two daughters. And in the story, he says that he was struck by a drunk driver, and when he awoke, his wife and two daughters were killed. 
The first thing he said I did is I woke up and learned it. And the first thing I said, he said that I did, is I cursed God and said, I forsake you. He said, the next thing I did as soon as I could get out of the hospital is I began my, to use the rest of my entire life to try and spite God. I smoked, I drank, I got in fights. I spent many nights with prostitutes and in strip clubs. I cursed God whenever I could, and I spent my nights lying in beds and in strange places, falling deeper and deeper into a pit of despair and hatred. But he said, when I got into the deepest, dark, darkest spot of the pit, when I looked up and there was no more light because I was so deep in the pit of hatred and despair, I realized something, that Jesus was there. When I hated, turned out Jesus hated with me. When I was sad, turns out that Jesus was always weeping with me about the exact same things. He, he says, it turns out when I was alone, Jesus' arm was around me the whole time. When I dug the pit deeper, Jesus was helping me dig. But I realized no matter how deep into the pit I dug and tried to go, Christ was always with me. When suffering and hardship and everything seems to slip away between our fingers, and persecution comes, and rejection comes, and opposition comes, we need to remember that Christ is with us. As the man said, Jesus ultimately never let me go. I climbed out of that pit only because he put me on his shoulders and helped me climb out. You see, we need to know that God has cosmic authority. We need to know that Jesus commands us to make disciples who make disciples. But what he wants us to know most of all is that every moment of every day, in every conversation, in every email, in every phone call, in every failure, in every defeat, in every bad joke, and in every glass of water that is served in his name, Christ is with his people. And he would never, ever leave us. He goes with you as you serve he is with you now as you worship. He goes with you while you go to bed at night, and he goes with you into the pit, into the dark of night, when everybody is gone and you feel so alone. Even in that moment, Christ is holding on to you still, probably even stronger, because he never leaves us, because he is with you always, every single day, always. And the great message of Matthew, when Jesus bursts onto the scene, is that God is with us, and Jesus is still with us. Luke says that his gospel is about the kingdom of God and what Jesus began to do and teach. And he says that Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And right now we live in the time where Jesus continues to build his kingdom. So much so that Paul at the very end of Acts says that he declared the kingdom of God to the end of his days. And God continues to spread his rule and reign to all nations by people of God moving towards those people in those nations and making them his disciples. They are Christ's ambassadors. We are his servants. We are his representatives. And the great comfort of all of us is that Christ is with me. We need to trust and rest in Jesus who has been given cosmic authority and that he is gathering people into his eternal kingdom that stretches from shore to shore that will have no end, that is full of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We need to rest in that truth. We need to know that we are kingdom workers, that we are imitating our master by making disciples and continuing his work just as he commands us to do. Because he has authority and he is the king. We are not Lord of our own lives. So we go out and do the work of making disciples. But most of all, we need to know that Christ is with us, that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you, that every moment of every day, Christ goes with us 
and he will never forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are disciples, that you have made us your disciples. Lord, that you have called us to yourself. Lord, we thank you that we have committed our lives to Jesus, but Lord, that you've committed your life to us. Lord, we thank you that we can teach and show others what it looks like to be citizens of your kingdom. But Lord, we thank you that you have shown us what it looks like to be a citizen and member of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. And as we come to the table, Lord, may we remember even more and be more encouraged and more sure that you are with us at this feast. You are not far, but you are in us. You could not be closer. We thank the God who has always moved more and more towards his people, starting in a bush and then in a tent and then in a temple and then in a person. And now he is in us before he ultimately comes and walks with us forever and ever. We pray for this kingdom to come. We pray for your will to be done. And we pray, Lord, that this kingdom work would be done right here in this earth just as it is in heaven. We pray all these things in the sweet and holy, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.